0: St. John saw many strange monsters in his vision. He saw no creature so wild as one of his own commentators, which is exactly what I thought this morning when I looked in the mirror after getting out of bed. Uh, We're in our fourth week of our series through the book of Revelation, and I am beyond excited Uh, to be joining the wild bunch of commentators that we've assembled here at Granville. Yes, Andy, that includes you. (laughs) Uh, And so far, Revelation has consisted of seven messages given to John by Jesus so that he can give them to the seven churches in Asia Minor and by extension to the whole church everywhere and every when in history. They're blunt messages, challenging messages. They cut to our hearts and they force us to confront the often messy reality of life as the church. Because while it's true that the church is persecuted, it's also true that the church is compromised. We all have demons to face, and though Jesus promises to stand beside us, He isn't shy about telling us that we need to face them regardless. And I have good news, because as a preacher, I should always have good news. But I also have a tendency towards lame jokes. So before I tell you the good news, I have to tell you the bad news. Those blunt and challenging messages that cut us to the quick, that was the easy part of the book of Revelation. It's all uphill from here. Because today we enter the heart of what makes this book so difficult for us to read and understand. What's tripped us up and kept us from reading our Bibles to the end. And the passage that Matt read for us today begins an extraordinary sequence of visions that lasts until almost the end of the book. Revelation is a letter, which means that someone is trying to tell us something. Jesus stands in the midst of his church and proclaims the truth through his servant, John. And this makes Revelation a prophecy, which means it's so much more than just a blueprint for the end of the world. God speaks through prophets to remind us of the story that we're part of, which is our past. He challenges us on our current realities of the present. And then he encourages us to live and act in hope for our future. And because of this, prophecy is not simply for the time in which it was written. It has eternal significance. Prophecy does not simply come true prophecy is always true. Now, the Greek word for revelation is apocalypse, which we always think is a word that means the end of the world as we know it. But to quote that great biblical scholar, Enigo Montoya, in his classic theological treatise, The Princess Bride, you keep using that word I do not think it means what you think it means. (laughs) Revelation isn't so much a linear narrative of events as much as it is an art gallery. John sees a door opened up in the sky, and he hears the voice of God, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place. And from that moment, John enters through the door, into a space full of pictures and sculptures that show us both how the artist sees the world and what needs to happen in order for the world to be fully what it was created to be. It is deliberately disorienting. The pictures move. And the symbolism of some of the images changes from one vision to the next. And even math and numbers are poetry. This is apocalypse. It opens our eyes. It purges our imaginations of billboards, political double-talk, and Twitter, and gives us the reality of the gospel, fresh and new, as if we're hearing it for the first time. Eugene Peterson puts it best, I do not read the Revelation to get additional information about the life of faith in Christ. I have read it all before in law and prophet, in gospel and epistle. There is nothing new to say on the subject, but there is a new way to say it. Even the imagery that Revelation uses is recycled from the rest of Scripture. Because the message of Revelation is the message of the whole Bible, that the one Lord has created one church and sent it out on one mission. And the first thing that John sees when he enters the art gallery is an enormous mural that covers most of the wall. And the picture is the nightmare of anyone who lives in a modern, liberal, Republican democracy. What he sees is a throne. And what's worse, there's someone sitting on it. And even worse, that someone is surrounded by an entire court of groveling, sycophantic lackeys who never stop kissing up to the boss. Kings and queens and throne rooms are nice enough in fairy tales, but in the real world, they are only tyrants and dictators who threaten our civil rights, which is why we keep our monarchs firmly under the thumb of constitutional democracy. My mom told me recently that when she needs a break from political news, she reads about the royal family when you can escape politics by focusing on the people who allegedly rule the land, you know how good we've gotten at keeping monarchs in their place. Of all the ways that we could be welcomed into God's revelation, a throne seems the least welcoming and the least relevant. So why begin with one? And it's important to remember that the book of Revelation is meant to reorient how we see the world. And that includes reorienting how we think about power. In the first century, if you lived anywhere near the Mediterranean Sea, then you learned from a very early age that the world revolved around Rome. Its engineers had built your roads, its emperors put their face on every coin, and its soldiers kept the Pax Romana in every town and city. The world was spinning out of control, or so they said, and Rome brought order. Rome kept the barbarians and the savages at bay. Rome was the center of the world, the axis on which everything turned, Or, at least, that's how most people saw it. John's revelation, the first mural in the art gallery, is meant to open our eyes to how the world truly works. And like all of his visions, there are a hundred tiny details we could unpack and speculate over. And I could lay out on a chart what five different commentators think about who precisely are the 24 elders and why the four living creatures are covered and full of eyes. Those details are worth unpacking and discussing, but I'm aware that you want to have lunch at some point, probably. So for now, I want us to focus on how everything that John sees in this amazing piece of art happens around the throne. Around the throne is a rainbow and the fire of the Holy Spirit, and a sea. Around the throne are 24 other thrones with elders who wear crowns. Around the throne are four living creatures, and the voices of many angels, and the worship of all these heavenly beings echoes out among every living creature in the world. Everything that has breath praises the Lord. And if it helps, you can think of a series of concentric circles radiating out and turning on their axis. And in the middle of everything, there's a throne. The throne is the center of gravity around which everything orbits. Not Rome and not us. The world has always seemed like it was spinning out of control. Imagine, if you will, a young man in the early 1970s who got into a terrible accident, which sent him into a deep coma. And imagine, then, uh, that he woke up just a few months ago, 45 years later. His skin was wrinkled, his muscles had atrophied, his life spent asleep in a hospital bed. And his brother, the only family still living, came to visit him. And the man asked his brother what was going on in the world. What did he miss? And his brother said, Well, it doesn't look too good right now. Everyone seems to be fighting. Gas prices keep going up. He still has supporters, but most people think the president is a crook and a liar. Refugees are everywhere. Racial tensions are rising, and we're doing untold amounts of damage to the environment. And the man who hadn't seen a newspaper since 1974 said, he got, he got a puzzled frown on his face, and he said, yeah, I, I know all that, but what's happened since then? Because the world has always seemed like it was spinning out of control. That's why we invent civilization erect institutions and governments, lay out roads to tell you where to go, plant flags to claim mastery over the world, build cities and security and identity for ourselves. And I'm sure there's never been a day in all the millennia of human history that felt truly settled. And that's as true on a personal level as it is on a social level. There's always something we need to protect ourselves from, something we need to control, and some way to assert our own power and influence over our lives. But the reality is that the world, far from spinning out of control, is always spinning around the throne. And this is not always an easy reality to see. I just finished my second year at Regent College, and it feels like I spent most of it full of anxiety and worry. And somewhere in the middle of that, I confronted the truth that deep down, I didn't trust God, either with what I need or what I desire which was a problem, because I also knew that I can't rely on myself. So over and over again, God showed me that He was still there, still the center of gravity. And it didn't make a difference, because no matter how many times I've been allowed to see God's care and compassion, it still feels impossible sometimes. To trust. The world has always seemed like it was spinning out of control, even though the reality is that it is always spinning around the throne. The throne reorients how we see the world, which means that it also reorients how we think about power. Rome, with its mighty empire, promised to bring order To chaos. But the divine apocalyptic imagination promises that the truth is very different. God has already brought order to chaos as the creator of the world. Empire, and there is always an empire, even small ones, even democratic ones, empire brings order largely through violence and arrogance. What it can't control by a monopoly on trade, it controls by force of arms. God's authority, unlike any dictator or tyrant in history, is not because of military might or economic mastery. It's a natural consequence of being the source of all life and the creator of all things. He is not only in the middle of everything, he is the middle itself, the center of gravity for the universe. We look at the throne and think that the person sitting on it must be yet another dictator, another strong man who wants to make us all his puppets. And in any other throne room, we would be correct. But in this throne room, Power doesn't look like what we think it will. In God's right hand is a book. And the question is, who is worthy to open the scroll, to break its seals and proclaim what is written on it? John weeps because no one is found anywhere who is worthy. But then he's told, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll. And the titles are messianic, and we know, of course, that he's talking about Jesus, the Son of God who himself rules heaven and earth, the astounding figure who John saw in chapter 1 standing among the seven churches. He has conquered. He is powerful. And then John looks to see that the one taking the scroll is a slaughtered lamb. John hears one thing but sees another. He hears the Lion of Judah and he sees the Lamb. And it won't be the last time in Revelation that our expectations will be overturned like that. So watch for that. Jesus takes the scroll from God. And later on in chapter 10, this same scroll shows up again in the hands of an angel, a messenger, who gives it to John and tells him to eat it so that John can prophesy to the church. The scroll is revelation. Not the literal text of this book that we're reading, but the prophetic truth that the Bible has always been proclaiming. The one Lord creates one church and sends it out on one mission. Jesus is the only one who is able to give us the truth. And the vision of Jesus as a slaughtered lamb reminds us why. Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. He was slaughtered as a sacrifice for our sin. He is standing again because he was resurrected. Jesus sits on the throne, not for the sake of control, but because he wants to give us life. Jesus is worthy to open the scroll and proclaim the truth, not because he is powerful, but because he has loved powerfully. Jesus is worthy to be worshipped because he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped and gave up every claim to power, which in turn is why he rules the world. And it's one of the most bizarre paradoxes in all of Scripture because it's not how we think power works. But that, after all, is precisely why we're given apocalypse. The throne reorients how we see reality, which means that it also reorients how we think about power. And all of that is designed to reorient how we live our lives, by which I mean it brings us to worship. Now, worship is a funny thing to try and define. I feel like no matter what we say about it, we somehow miss the mark or leave something out. And inevitably, I'll do that today. But for this morning, let's think of worship as a direction That we face. To live in this world at all is to be around the throne. To live as a Christian in this world is to turn ourselves around and face towards the one who sits on it, no matter what we have to say to him or how fervently we believe. The act of turning towards God turns our lives in a different direction. The elders around the throne have their own thrones and their own crowns. They've been given power and authority. But when we see them worshipping, they're throwing their crowns away like they're so much garbage. When the four creatures give honor and glory and thanks to God, The elders give him glory and honor and power. He is worthy to receive everything that we have. Power is what they have, and so that is what they give to him. Worship is always an act. Turning towards the one Lord makes us into the one church, And it should put us on one mission, which is why prophets like Amos and Micah and John remind us over and over again that worship involves pursuing justice and healing the damage we've done. And that right relationship with God is embodied in right relationship with each other. Worship isn't a happy pill or an easy way out. Even when we face the center of gravity, it doesn't stop us from feeling the spinning of the world. There's nothing easy about worship. And in the middle of not being able to trust God, unsurprisingly, I also found it difficult to pray. And among the many graces that God has given me in the face of my doubt, was community. People who could pray when I could not. It includes my friends, and it includes people like the writer of Psalm 42. Someone who feels very, very far from God, but who also remembers what it was like to worship in the midst of the congregation. Hope in God For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. That's a constant refrain. And I can't help but hear in that psalm someone reciting over and over the truth that he can't quite accept, but he longs to believe in again. The psalms turn towards God in comfort or in grief in anger and in joy, in contemplation and amazement. It doesn't matter what. All of it is worship. Your kids are sick. You lost your job. You graduated high school. In the middle of everything, there's a throne. You moved to a different country. You just got married. Your friend, your beloved, you, Just got diagnosed with a debilitating disease. In the middle of everything, there's a throne. You have everything you want. You've lost everything you value. You just had a baby. You're nearing the end of your life. In the middle of everything, there's a throne. Christians are people who know the world has a center of gravity. And so whether our depression is unbearable or our joy is overwhelming or we have no idea what the future holds, in words and in action, in singing and in weeping, loudly or pathetically, day and night, we never Cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, to receive power and wealth, and wisdom and might, and honor and glory and blessing. To him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Amen.